Romans chapter 8. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let us pray. Our Father, we come this morning, this Lord's Day morning, and we confess you are great. You are awesome in all your attributes. You are perfect. You are high above all things. And we bow in your presence this morning, and we ask, dear Father, that you would come and help us, and that you would speak to our hearts. We pray, Father, that we would take heed to your word and hear what the Spirit says to the church. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together as your people and worship you and hear your word. And so, Father, we ask now again that you will be kind to us and build us up in our most holy faith. And, Father, we ask that you would be kind, eternally kind to many more in this room today. And we ask it in the matchless name of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. This morning we return to our Puritan book study, The Mortification of Sin in Believers, by the Reverend Dr. John Owen, that 17th century pastor and educator who is considered by many to be the prince of theologians. We began this study almost a year ago. It was the 5th of June in 2022. I trust that this intermittent nature has not caused us to say out of sight, out of mind. And because this has become an occasional study, I pray that we don't consider this as an occasional duty. This is an everyday, to the end of our days, holy task. In the words of Owen, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Then he puts the question and an exhortation to those who he says are believers, those who Colossians 3, 1 calls those who have been risen with Christ. And he puts this question to those of us who profess to know Christ and say that we are believers. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The previous lessons would be too much to condense into a reasonable introductory review. So I've decided to forego that material and refer you to our website if you are interested in those studies. This morning we come to the eighth preparatory direction found in chapter 12 of Owen's treatise. This chapter is titled in the Puritan paperback abridgment, 
by Richard Rushing as simply humility. Dr. Owen opens this chapter with this statement. Use and exercise thyself to such meditations as may serve to fill thee at all times with self-abasement and thoughts of thine own vileness. A more modern rendering would be, we need to be exercised with such meditations as will fill us at all times with self-abasement and thoughts of our vileness. That's Richard Rushing. Andrew Wren said it this way, meditate on the things that fill you with self-abasement and that show you how small and insignificant you are. This language is not acceptable nowadays. With all the talk of mental health and the promotion of self-esteem, Owen would be castigated for prescribing such a course of humiliation of oneself. To follow this Puritan pastor's direction is countercultural in a fallen world. Men are encouraged by mental health experts to challenge negative thinking. Never are we to be content with being reduced in rank or humbled or lowly. The model of the world is an echo of that evil one who said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. Isaiah 14, 14. The Apostle Paul tells young Timothy, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and unholy. Second Timothy three. So now in our day, we witness the copycats of the wicked inhabitants of the cities of the plain, which God destroyed with brimstone brimstone and fire. They're parading through our cities with signs reading pride. No doubt King Hezekiah heard of that sobering historical event. We read in 2 Chronicles 32, then Hezekiah humbled himself. For the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. That was a good thing for Hezekiah to do. Because God reveals to us in his holy word that he hates pride. Proverbs 8:13. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs six eighteen. Now you might ask, what has that talk about pride have to do with the mortification of sin? Well, the answer is simply this: every sin has pride at its root. Every sin. Think back on your week. And there were moments in all of our lives where we sinned against God. And as you think about that sin, hopefully you confessed your sin and sought forgiveness in the blood of Christ, but you still sinned. And when you think of that sin, I want you to think that that sin has as its root 
pride. Every sin would unguard God. Sin will entice us to push God off his throne so that we make that place, the throne of heaven, a place for our occupation. Thus making us guilty of breaking the first commandment. Dear ones, memorize this verse. The pride of man will be humbled. And the loftiness of men will be abased. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Isaiah two seventeen. Humility is the antithesis of pride. Owen knew that if we're not humbled, we'll never deal with sin as we ought. So he says, meditate. He's called us to meditate. Just a word this morning about meditation. Donald Whitney, in his book entitled Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, discusses the benefits and methods of meditating on the word of God. It's in that second section when he talks about Bible intake. Bible intake is taking in the word of God. It's a very important discipline. It's a very important means of grace. And meditation is intimately attached to the taking in of the word of God. Whitney says this. One sad feature of our modern culture is that meditation has become identified more with non-Christian systems of thought than the biblical Christianity. Even among believers, the practice of meditation is often more closely associated with yoga, transcendental meditation, relaxation therapy, or the New Age movement. Because meditation is so prominent in many spiritually counterfeit groups and, move, and movements, some Christians are uncomfortable with the whole subject and suspicious of those who engage in it. But we must remember that meditation is both commanded by God and modeled by the godly in Scripture. Just because a cult uses the cross, he says, as a symbol, doesn't mean the church should cease to use it. In the same way, we shouldn't discard or be afraid of scriptural meditation simply because the world has adopted it for its own purposes. And then he says the kind of meditation encouraged in the Bible differs from other kinds of meditation. And so he goes on in this in this section and he talks about the benefits of meditation. He talks about the method of meditation. We come to the end of that section. He says this. Hear this, brethren. Don't rush. Take time. It's in bold print with an exclamation point. Don't rush. Take time. What value is there to reading one, three, or more chapters of Scripture only to find that after you've finished you can't recall a thing you've read. Has anyone ever <laughs> experienced that? You sought in the morning to meet with God. And you're going to be ambitious. And you're going to read 10 chapters before you get your coffee. 
And you succeed. You read those chapters and you feel good about yourself. But by the time you get on with your day's activities, if someone asks you what you read this morning, you couldn't tell them. Whitney says, don't rush. Take time. He says, it's better to read a small amount of scripture and meditate on it than to read an extensive section without meditation. Bible intake, we're trying, we're bringing God's word into our hearts. And so the whole aim is not to read the Bible in a year so we can check off our little list. The, the aim is to get the truth of God's word into our hearts that it might affect how we live in this world. Maurice Roberts wrote these words from Scotland in 1990. He said, our age has been sadly deficient in what may be termed spiritual greatness. At the root of this is the modern disease of shallowness. We are all too impatient to meditate on the faith we profess. It is not the business, pardon me, it is not the busy skimming over religious books or the careless hastening through religious duties which makes us strong Christians or strong in our faith. Rather, it is unhurried meditation on gospel truths and the exposing of our minds to those truths that yield fruit. That fruit that it produces a sanctified character. My favorite when it comes to these things is Henry Scudder. I probably read this to you before, but I think it bears repeating. Henry Scudder in his book, The Christian's Duty or The Christian's Daily Walk in Holy Security and Peace. He says this concerning meditation. When you are alone. That's his first statement. When you are alone, don't consider yourself engaging in any kind of profitable meditation in the car, listening to the radio. Or when there's busyness all around you, find a place where you can be alone with God. Hearing only what you are reading as the Holy Spirit bears it home to your heart. He says, when you are alone, then also is a fit season for you to be employed in holy meditation. For according to a person's meditation, such as he. The liberal man devises liberal things. The covetous man, the contrary, Isaiah 32, 8. The godly man studies how to please God. The wicked, how to please himself. In meditation, the mind or reason of the soul fixes itself upon something conceived or thought upon for the better understanding thereof and for the better application of it to itself for use. The distinction or the distinct act, pardon me, in parts of meditation are these. He says there's two, there are two aspects to meditation. In meditation, or right, the mind of man exercises two kinds of acts. The one, direct upon the thing meditated. The other, reflects upon himself, the person meditating. We meditate upon 
the thing we are reading, the word of God, and we think on ourselves in relationship to that which we've read. The first is an act of contemplation. This part of understanding. We bring in God's word into our minds. The second is an act of conscience to the end of the first. To enlighten the mind with knowledge to the end of the second is to fill the heart with goodness. The first serves I speak of moral actions to find out the rule whereby you may know more clearly what is true, what is falsehood, what is good, what is bad, whom you should obey and what manner of person you should be and what you should do and the like. The second serves to direct you how to make a right and profitable application to yourself and to your actions of the rule. This latter, he said, there are two acts. First, examination whether you and your actions be in accordance with the rule or whether you come short and are served and have swerved from it, giving judgment of you according as it finds you. And the second is a persuasive and commanding act, charging the soul and every faculty, understanding, will, affections, yea, the whole man to reform and conform themselves to the rule that is to the will of God. If you find yourself not to think and act according to it, which is done by confessing the fault to God with remorse, praying for forgiveness, returning to God by faith and repentance and reforming the heart and life through new obedience. This must be the resolution of the soul. And all this a man must charge upon himself preeminently. Commanding himself with sincere desire and fixed endeavor to conform to it. We look at God's word and we say, this is what God has said. This is what God means. I understand it. Is that me? If you can say by the grace of God, I'm obeying these things, say, praise God. Thank the Lord. But if not, we're called upon to repent and turn and endeavor after new obedience. Scudder goes on, he says, when you meditate, join all these three acts, else you will never bring your meditation to a profitable issue. For if you only muse and study to find out what is true, what is false, what is good, what is bad, you may gain much knowledge in the head, but little goodness to your heart. The Pharisees didn't know or right, but they, they were puffed up. And there are many in our day who, who pride themselves in being very astute and very knowledgeable of Bible doctrines and, and could stand with the best of them in the seminaries and in the ivory towers. But how does the knowledge of God and the things we learn from scriptures, the things that you hear, brethren, from this pulpit Sunday after Sunday, how do these things affect how you live. How do they affect your heart? You can perhaps go down the street and say we're the most knowledgeable. God has given us a more mature understanding of the truth. And strut around like peacocks and be as carnal as a worldling. But these truths ought to have an effect upon our lives. and They ought to, they ought to cause some things to happen. So he says, observe David's meditation. 
and you will find they came to this issue. His thoughts of God and his ways made him turn his feet onto God's testimonies. Psalm 119, 59. He says, when he considered what God had done for him and thence inferred what he should be to God again, he said to his soul, my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. Psalm 103. You see, David was looking at what the scripture said about what God had done in Psalm 103 and all the benefits and, and the blessings of forgiveness and, and the taking away of his sins. And he says, what is that? As he, he didn't rush through. He thought about it. He pondered it. And what what did it cause him to do? It caused him to speak to his heart. And he said, oh, oh, praise God. That's the proper response to this meditation that it causes something to happen. David considered his ways. He thought on his ways. And what did it do? It caused him to direct his feet in the path of righteousness in the proper way. Brethren, that's what God's word is intended to do for us, that we might glorify him in the earth, that we might walk humbly before our God. It's not enough, brethren, I say, to only be concerned and content with Bible knowledge for trivia's sake. It is for living. What does that look like? Owen tells us in his treatment. When he calls us to meditate on the glory of God, he calls us to meditate upon the majesty and the excellence, the excellency of God. And he says, if we do this, it will humble us. We really do think more of ourselves than we ought to think. Now, I understand the Bible tells us to think soberly. The Bible tells us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but it also encourages us not to think more lowly of ourselves than we are. We are God's children. We are image bearers of God. We have been created in the image of God. But there's a proper place, a proper balance where we must stand. And so if we get the right, a right view of God, it will put us in a right position. And so in so doing, we will engage in battle with pride. Pride keeps us from giving God the glory that he is due because we think it's all about us and what we have done and what we have accomplished in subtle ways, in subtle ways. How many times have you come away from a situation or a thing and, and God has helped you and, 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 and you kind of felt like Nebuchadnezzar. Look what my hands have done. God has given you abilities and talents and knowledge and whatever he's given you. He's to be praised. And in our in our silent moments, when we're meditating upon the word of God, we ought to be thinking about Lord. And in those times when we're tempted to take the credit for what God has done, Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me to understand who I am in your presence. We're big in, 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 in the eyes of other people and we may have more achievements and and, 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 and uh, 
accolades than other folks. But other folks are not the standard. God is the standard. Think much on the excellence of the majesty of God. And then Owen says, secondly, think how little you really know of God. Think how little you really know of God. You say, Ernest, we're in a good Reformed Baptist church. We know a lot about God. Think how little you really know of God. Owen says our unacquaintedness with God will humble us. It will bring us in a proper posture, in a proper place. Think about the greatness, the majesty, and the excellence of God, and how far above he really is. Think about God's position, brethren. He really is. He can't help but make you feel how insignificant you really are. So as to totally humble you. This strikes deep at the root of indwelling sin. When Job finally sees how great and excellent God is, it fills him with self-loathing and humiliation. And he says, now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42. What does Habakkuk say when confronted with the reality of God's majesty? I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Habakkuk 3, 16. God, Job says, is clothed with awesome majesty in Job 37. This sense of the terrible majesty of God is why the people of the Old Testament thought that if they saw God, they would die. The Bible was full of this kind of self-abased thinking in which people are said to be like grasshoppers, vanity and the dust of a scale compared to God. You should be sure to keep your mind full of thoughts like this. They will tear down the pride in your heart and make your soul humble. And there's nothing like humble hearts to protect you from the deceit of sin. Think always of the greatness of God. Always think of the greatness of God and it will keep us in our proper posture. Then Owen says, we need to think how little we really know about God. You should also think about how little you actually know about God. You know enough to keep you in total humility, but even that is but a tiny fraction of what there is to know. This is how the wise man was thinking when he said, surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not understood. I have no understanding I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One who has ascended to heaven and come down, who has gathered the wind in his fist, 
who has wrapped up the waters in a garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely, you know, Proverbs 30. This is also something you can use to tear down the pride in your heart. What do you know about God? What a tiny fragment it is. How immense is his nature? Can you look without terror into the abyss of eternity? Can you can't stand the rays of glory? And he goes on, he says, because I think meditating on this is something that's so incredibly useful in our walk, at least as long as we do it in a way that is consistent with the confident access Christ has bought for us to draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews four. And we don't let it frighten us away from coming towards God. He's saying we need to understand how high God is, but don't be so scared of God when you start understanding the immense glory and excellency and majesty of our creator. That it keeps you away from the throne of grace. There, there has been provision made for us sinful creatures to come close to God and he bids us to come that we might receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. It is because of Christ and Christ alone that we have access to the throne of grace and we can come to God. So, brethren, there's a tension. Here's a balance here. We must be humbled. We must see ourselves as mere creatures under God's hand. But also these we are creatures who have received mercy and we have access because of Christ and because of Christ alone. Can we come before this awesome God? Owen says we must be humbled. We must bring ourselves low. But don't let that humility keep you away from the throne of grace. Keep your heart in continuous awe, the majesty of God. Remember that even the most spiritual people on earth, the ones we think have a close relationship to him, still in this life don't know anything other than the smallest portions of what there is to know about God. God revealed his name to Moses. He came to Moses and he said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness in Exodus 34. But brethren, yet this was only the backside of God. Everything Moses saw and knew amounted to small, tiny pieces compared to the total perfection of God's glory. The Apostle John wrote in a way that specifically included Moses when he said no one has ever seen God. God is so high above us. And even this this privileged servant of Jehovah only saw the backside of God, only had a portion, a portion of who God was or who God was to him and who God is. We talk about God all the time. We talk about his ways, his works, his plans and his character. But the truth is, we just don't know that much about him. Our thoughts, our meditations and the things we say about him are completely insufficient 
to express his actual glory and the true nature of his attributes. Don't be discouraged. God has given us his word. He has given us his spirit. And what he wants us to know about him, he has revealed in his word. The Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us. We have the blessed privilege of knowing what God wants us to know of him. But even what we read and understand and study from the scriptures is only a small portion of what God really is. And because of his greatness, we ought to be humble. And humility strikes at and supplies us with the proper posture to do battle with sin. We need to meditate on the excellency, the majesty of God. And we need to think serious about how little we really know, lest we get puffed up. How much we really don't know about God. That's one of those humbling things when you've when you've gone to school and you've studied and you you think you, you got your lesson great and down pat and you just can't wait to raise your hand and answer the question. As soon as the teacher comes and asks, uh, ask the question. And, and before you can raise your hand, your classmate raises their hand. And they recite not just what you have memorized, but they've memorized four chapters beyond what you've memorized. And you're humble. You're humble. We are humble when we know that the little knowledge that we've acquired really isn't all that to be proud and boastful about. We thank God for it. And as I say, there's a tension here, brethren. We thank God for what he has given us and, and how he has aided us. But we really do know little of God. Now, there are some objections that were raised. Owen has set forth some objections that people have made to his statement, and he answers those objections. And I think we'll take those objections up. Next week. But God's word, brethren, is sufficient for what? It's sufficient to achieve the purposes of redemptive revelation. God's word is sufficient. And we must soak in everything we can. Our brothers teaching a discipleship group on the attributes of God. We need to learn everything we can Everything God has revealed to us in his sufficient word. His word does not tell us everything about him, but it tells us what we need to know. It is sufficient for all his redemptive purposes. And he has revealed to us what he wants us, what he wants the world to know. God's word is sufficient for his glory. It's sufficient for man's salvation and it's sufficient for faith and life. And this is what we must take in and drink in. The word of God that, that 
that brings us low, that puts us in a proper posture, that we can walk humbly in the world and walk before him. And so Owen, in our previous studies, he says we need to load our consciences. When you think of something being loaded, something that's just being piled on like a, like a wheelbarrow that's just too difficult to, to manage because it's full of bricks. He says, load your conscience. Not just slight thoughts of God or, or a couple of things that you've read about God, but soak in everything you can about God from his holy word. Load your consciences with the knowledge of God, but in the previous studies, he says, load your consciences with the guilt and the danger and the evil of sin. Look at what the Bible says about sin, God's disposition towards sin. And if we think light of it and we don't battle it and we don't fight it, it's because of pride. And we need to be humbled. Load your consciences. Multiply texts. Sometimes when we're teaching, you know, the scripture says by the by the by two or three witnesses, let every truth be established. And, and we'll set forth a couple of scriptural passages to set forth and support a biblical truth. But when you get home in, the low, in, in your quiet place, take more than two scriptures, three scriptures. Take your notepad and write down everything the Bible says about your peculiar sins. Not your neighbors, not your wives, not your husbands, not your children's, your sins. Write down, if I struggle with lying, I'm going to get my concordance and write down every scripture that talks about the evil tongue, lying. And load your consciences with the guilt and the evil and the danger of that sin. Be humbled. As, as, as the apostle says in, in Romans chapter 6, those things whereof we are now ashamed. When we think back on what we once were before God saved us, and there are times in our lives when we have flashbacks of the sins we committed in our past, We're ashamed of those things. Those things are humbling. Let them humble us. But let us be using those memories to warn us of the danger and the evil and the wickedness of sin. So Owen goes on and he talks about this is necessary. These are preparatory works. The last chapter deals with how we're to mortify sin. But Owen is convinced that we won't deal with sin and we won't be able to employ the means that God has provided for us to mortify sin aright if we don't take these preparatory steps. When you, when you, when you desire to get a driver's license, you just don't go in, the, in, the, in motor vehicles and say, I want one of those license things, sign me up. No, they give you a book to read. And in that book, it's got all kinds of rules and laws, and it's got a section with signs in it. 
And, and you've got to know what those signs mean, those regulatory signs, those signs that warn you of danger. And if you don't study that book and learn what those signs mean, you won't get your driver's license. And if we don't study what God's word has to say about the dangers and the evils of sin, we won't deal with sin right. If we've got to study to get a driver's license and, 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 and put ourselves on these dangerous roads, Brethren, it's more important to study God's word, to prepare ourselves for living in a dangerous world, with devil's field, with all kinds of enemies around us, the world, the devil. If that weren't enough, we've got an enemy in our own breast that seeks to be in cahoots with that wickedness. So God's word calls us and Owen is calling us to do these things first. So when we get to the duty proper, we're prepared. We're in the right frame of mind. We're thinking rightly and we're doing it for the right reason. For God's glory and God's glory alone. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you condescended by sending your son for rebels, for needy sinners. We thank you for your spirit who has opened our eyes, who has taken your holy word to our hearts, and caused us to flee from the city of destruction. We thank you that you've given us grace to flee to the cross, that only place of refuge for needy sinners. And Father, we pray this morning as we seek to put to death the deeds of the body, as we seek to mortify our sin, we pray, Lord, that you would give us strength for the journey. Help us, Lord, to see you as you are revealed in your word, knowing that this is but a small portion of who you really are. But it is enough for us to turn. And so, Father, we pray as those who sit among us who are not saved, hear your word preached today. We pray that you would intrude upon their wicked hearts and show them their need. For a savior. Oh may they not come away from this place today. Until they've had dealings with you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.